0: Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb to see. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone uh, from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, as the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angels answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And as he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, and behold, behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came, and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, and go to Galilee, and there they will see me.
1: The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. I can't get enough of saying that. The kids are invited to Kids Church uh, with Kelly. That, that phrase, he is risen indeed, um, strikes me as as the whole reason why we're here. And, and all the words I say after that are kind of uh, adding to the noise. And yet, I have to say something, um, uh, or they don't pay me. Um, and so this morning we come and hear the good news that that tomb is empty, that Christ is risen again. And this this image um, uh, has this sort of negative space and open space with it and proclaims something in its absence. You sort of can tell what's not there, and it, and it kind of looks like the tomb like we have. And, and one of the ways that this text starts is by saying that After Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. What it means to say there is that in some sense, new creation has begun, that a new day has dawned, and not just a new day, but a new time has begun. And in, in, in Matthew's gospel, both the Marys were there at the cross. Both the Marys had seen Jesus crucified. They had seen the one whom they had followed, who they had um, loved, who they had been drawn near to, and they had seen him crucified on the cross. And so they go out into the tomb um, expecting what we all would expect, which is that death still reigns. And in some sense, what they begin to confront is this overturning of the world where the rich get richer, the proud grow stronger. um, Uh, dead people stay dead, and what they find there is this new day in which everything is changed. And oftentimes, when we come together for Easter, guilty of this myself, we go back and we want to go back to the cross, and we want to talk about that, we want to talk about other things, and yet we have this full new day dawning in which those things are reversed. That something new has broken into the world. What Brian read for us from the book of Isaiah during worship is that the shroud that covers all of us, which is death, which is being pulled away. That God is doing something mighty in this act. And one of the things that that sort of is coming up here is, is who God is. God is one who vindicates his servant Jesus by raising him from the dead. And so these two women had witnessed the last gasp of the old order in the crucifixion. They had witnessed that death had its power, that kings ruled, that these things had gone the way they always had gone. And what they found was that this is being rolled back the same way the stone is being rolled back. So the reason I like this image is because it proclaims something by its absence. The tomb is empty, proclaims something. Easter is one of these things we know by what is taken away. So much of our life is adding, 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 adding. And what we find in Easter is that death no longer has its power because the body is not in the tomb, but that Christ has been raised. And these are witnesses of that new age here. These two women witnessed that first. And so what happens in this passage is is that we have the privilege of announcing the good news. I think most of us think Christianity comes to us as advice, as rules and regulations first. But in fact, Christianity first comes as news. And the fact that it becomes as news that needs to be almost interpreted by an angel means that it is news that um, we don't have already. It's something outside us. So often as a teacher and a preacher, I'm tempted to say, you know in your life how you witness something like this, and then this is how it relates to the, to the text? It just makes our lives sort of evident of this. But what we find in Christianity is the announcement of something new. And what we find is what we're charged with is the same thing that the woman is charged with, is going out and saying that this is no longer the way it is. Go and tell them that he is risen, he is not there. We're invited into sharing this news. And as it is, it is news before it is advice. I think it's wise for us to to sit with that, that it is outside of us. And this way it comes to us as a gift, too. In Christian language, this is a grace for us, that this news comes to us from the outside. In Matthew's gospel, there's, there's these two violent earthquakes, one when Jesus is crucified and one when the tomb is rolled away. And now, uh, I often say here that, um, uh, and it's, I didn't come up with this, but it's not familiarity that breeds contempt, it's familiarity that breeds infamiliarity, and infamiliarity breeds contempt. That we begin to think, well, I know all that, and so then you have contempt towards it. So this week, I kept reading the earthquake, the earthquake, I was like, the earthquake was at the cross, um, and there's two earthquakes. My familiarity with it made me go, I don't know what's going on here, as I studied and read. I was like, they must be out of order or something, and yet in Matthew's gospel, there's these two earthquakes. And if we don't read scripture slowly, we miss these things. Because the first earthquake, I think, shows this idea that that the earth is receiving that which will make it sick. And the second earthquake is the expulsion of that body that was locked in there. At the end of the sermon, as I always do on Easter, I read uh, John Christensen's sermon from, I should know when it is, from 300-ish A.D. Because I think, one, People have been reading that sermon on Easter forever, so who am I to think I could do better? Um, And two, it says, and you'll see it on the back of the bulletin, that hell tasted a body, and it made it sick. That the earth that swallowed Jesus up, there's this earthquake again, sort of expunging that which wasn't meant to be in there. Christ goes to the grave, and it is rolled back, and we find this new life, this new announcement the, the, the stone is rolled away, and the angel sits on top of it, which is, which is interesting because, again, our, our familiarity with this passage, and when I say our, always assume I'm talking about myself um, <laughs> uh, because that's true. I just don't feel like, well, I was this dim-witted. It doesn't sound as good. Um, so when I say our, I hope somebody else is like me. Um, our uh, in familiarity with this cam- uh, passage, me, is that I assume that the stone is rolled away so that Jesus can get out. But the passages don't make it that way. The stone is rolled away so that we can go in and see the evidence that it is empty. And and no one sees the resurrection in any of these stories. It's not seen by human eye. And One of the things I want to open up for us as we think about this passage is that there is doubt in this moment. The guards who see this tomb and become like dead men. Um, and we'll go to that in a second longer. But they, they go away in the next passage and they're paid to deny that this happened. I think many of us, myself included, think that when you think you would have witnessed the resurrection, that would be it. An angel sat on the tomb and I became like a dead one. Therefore, my life has been changed. And yet the guards are bought off. And as most lies go, they also have to worry about the governor. Don't worry, we'll take care of you in the next section. But in Matthew's gospel, disbelief um, in this miracle reigns, sort of. The guards have the ability to deny it. In the last scene, which is only a couple verses past this, when Jesus is risen before his disciples and ready to ascend to heaven, it says some of them didn't believe. And there's this thing that happens in this passage over and again that we're told to see, to see, to see, and look, and look, and look. And what it is to say that to have the eyes of faith to do this. I think why we often think that the resurrection would overpower our senses and yet Christ, who took up residency in a body from a man from Galilee or from Nazareth, who walked this earth and performed miracles and taught and teached, he doesn't overwhelm us ever. And yet we're invited into this story to become this people who hear this news. And so doubt plays an intrinsic role in this to some degree, even as disciples begin to doubt. I don't want to make too much of that, but, but when I was thinking about that, it is weird that 2,000 years later, we're here. And, and to, to put that in perspective, as, as we know, you know, America is like 200-and-something-ish years old. Like 2,000 years later, we get up, we put on nice clothes, we come to church, and we take in that news regardless of whether we're in on it or not. These things are weird when you think about them. This act and this memory... It's it's Charles Taylor, the philosopher, who talks about that in some sense in the pre-modern imagination, which is one that I think, I hope that we can begin to take into ourselves here, is that when you go to an Easter service, it feels closer to that day than some random day in 1950 or 1870 or 1000 A.D., that somehow that in this, this Easter celebration, we create this thin place where that feels like news again. Going back in time doesn't make it more relevant, but it's gathering on this day that we begin to see that again. The guards became like dead men, is sort of this next passage. The angel comes and rolls the stone away, and his appearance overwhelms. Uh, I would say that, that the angels there is sort of this God stamp that says, this has been done. Um, there's a joke from, from a kid's church sermon. Does anybody know Jesus' first words after he rose from the dead? And one of the kids in the this, in this service that I've heard says, ta-da. Um, not Jesus' first words, but kind of God and the angels. That this is rolled away is to sort of say that this has been done. This is over. So that the, these men, when they see the angel the guards, they become like dead men. And this phrase, and I've been trying to find where this phrase comes from. I even asked a bunch of friends, and I said, if it's in scripture, I'll feel great shame. But please tell me where it came from, and I could not find it. But what happens here is he, the dead one, the one who has been locked in the tomb, becomes the living And they, the living, become the dead ones. And I think about that passage and what we've learned from Matthew's gospel. If you haven't been with us, we started with the Sermon on the Mount in the fall, finished it in Epiphany season, went through these parables. Um, But there's this reversal of things that keeps happening. The, The kingdom sort of creates this great reversal, as in, He is not dead, He is risen, is one of those reversals. But this idea of that the ones we assume are dead might be living and the ones that we assume are living become the dead a long time um ago i I watched this video in which this guy is explaining i can't remember what um and he talked about those people who are fierce with reality and i've always thought i'd like to become one of those people who would say that they're fierce with reality that they have this relationship to reality that goes deeper. And I was just thinking about that this week, is what does it mean to become a living one after this and opposed to being a dead one? And, and this is one of the things that Christians mark in baptism. We move from death to life, that, that we are buried into death with him and we are raised into new life so that we become living ones on the other side of that. There's a truth that's buried within that, that for, for Christians, death is not the worst thing that can happen to you as well, that we've been given something else in this world. And so we're raised to new life there, um, but to be fierce with reality. I was thinking about people in my own life who who I would describe as fierce with reality, and there's there's a um, stillness to them that they don't exude. They're the opposite of peacocks in some ways. Um, And I was thinking that the people I know who are described as fierce with reality would never say, you know, on Fox News I heard, or on CNN I read, or the CDC just said. They might be aware of these things, but their conversations are different than that. They have a depth to the soul when they look at you and talk to you. It's not just going to be about, did you read the latest thing? Again, mainly throwing myself under the bus here. Um, That they have this depth in which they begin to live their lives in a way that they sort of know that death is not the end, that retribution isn't all that we have, that I don't have to just keep building a bigger and bigger barn to store for myself in the face of scarcity, that they can turn the other cheek and let stuff go, a miracle in and of itself. (laughs) I don't exceed at letting it go. Um, I do tell Kelly sometimes, be like Elsa and let it go. And if you have kids, you might know what I'm talking about. Um, And if you don't, praise be to God. (laughs) And so these ones become, um, to be invited into this news is to become somebody who can be fierce with reality because we follow one who is that way. That in this earthquake and resurrection, um, reality has been torn And the message that we hear twice from the angel and from Jesus when they meet him on the road is this, do not be afraid. And from the angel, I think it comforts the women. It brings them into this place of knowing that something has happened here that they are insiders on in which they can receive and see as good news. They're radically changed by this. And this changes things and it changes them that they are to go ahead to Galilee and to say it there. There's this, um, what the angel announces is this sort of past, present, and future thing. I love that the, the angel sort of announces that you're looking for the crucified one. That Jesus is the crucified one. It, it, um, I think we would hope that the bonds of what has happened to us as death rules would be erased, but what I think the, this scripture calling him the, the crucified one proclaims to us is that you wouldn't be you anymore. To have victory on the other side is the goal, but not not to be you. And the title the angel gives isn't... Um, I've never been one for Christian uh, uh, kish art or something like that, but the, when it, you used to look through posters at Spencer's when you were young, just a way-dated reference. Um, There would be one with Jesus and all the names he has, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, uh, the Lamb of God, this, that, and the other, and it was horribly graphically divined. and I was wondering, who would buy such a thing? Um, And yet the angel here doesn't give him any of the grand titles we are familiar with Jesus, but calls him the crucified one, the one who went to that place. I know as Christians, there's um. Uh, theologies of glory, this is a Martin Luther distinction, and if, and if you're new here, I try to avoid nerdy stuff like this, but I always give in. Um, it's like, don't do it, don't do it. Here I am. Uh, there's theologies of glory, and what Luther tried to correct in the world, because the church had this sort of imperial sort of idea that we're on top of the world, and we get to sort of be these people in glory and set the agenda and do the things, and if you think that's only in the 1600s, have I got news for you. <laughs> And yet, what Luther proclaimed at that time was that we need to reclaim a theology of the cross. It's glory that's promised to us in the end. This first fruits, this end of the world in miniature that we witness in Jesus Christ, is for us in the future. But on this side of the renewal of all things, when new creation abounds, it's for us to hold up the cross. That we exist in this theology of the cross more than this theology of glory. You're looking for the crucified one, Pulls to the past. He is risen, is this, this notion in the, uh, the present. Hallelujah, he is risen. Indeed, hallelujah. I'll never stop. Um, broken record on Easter. Um, it proclaims in the present that he is risen. He is not here. There's emptiness. We sort of talked about that already, and that something is pulled back, and that proclaims something else. He is risen and he is alive. The things have been beginning to pull away. And the last thing is that he is going ahead of you. That God goes ahead of us is news worth storing up as Christians today. He goes ahead of us to Galilee. And, and this is like, he goes ahead of them to Galilee is kind of this odd thing. All the disciples come from Galilee, and so that's why he's going there because they seem to have gone back there. But it's like, the new risen Jesus to, is going ahead of you to Rome would make more sense to me. He's going to um, uh, Herod's place to say, ha, you thought you had won, um, but you had not, that those who condemn him to the cross. Um, There's a old Lord. What am I doing? There's an old Mad TV skit where it's like Jesus returns and he's like Rambo, Um, and I think sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that makes more sense than like I'm going to go see those who abandoned me in Galilee, Um, and that's where he's going ahead to. That Christ goes ahead of us, and in some sense, as we go out into the world, as we do our sending here, there's this. Churches talk about that we are gathered and then we are scattered as Christians, and I prefer to say that we are gathered and then we are sent. Christ goes ahead of us out into the world. And there we meet the, the unexpected beauty and strangeness that he has for us. So this empty tomb becomes this trophy to what God has done. A Saint Ethan atheist talks about um, that he sets up monuments in the hearts of disciples to what he's done in the world through the empty tomb. And he, he has this other great phrase where he says, if you see children playing with a lion, you would assume that the lion is dead. And what he, he's trying to point out there is this idea that like Christians on the other side of this, we, we know that death has been uh, cast out, that death has died that Jesus has, has sort of pulled back the shroud on these things. And so we, we, he, he calls this, is, is, that, is that the worst thing that can happen to us as Christians, as death? Or is there something else we're invited to in the world? And so the women, they leave the tomb full of fear and joy. And that's one of the things that this Sunday is meant to exhibit for us, both this fear and awe of what God has done, and probably some legitimate fear, but also joy. And joy, as I've pointed out at other times, is not something that trades super popular in the world today. Um, If somebody were... I can't be alone in in hating the Pharrell song, I'm So Happy, um, because that sort of thing is like, chill out, man. Um, Hold back. And one of the things that I try to talk about at Defines Church is what does authentic emotion mean? Because we try to live in this small register, I often think, and, and the Psalms are a corrective to this in some ways, is that we try to live in this register between like, I'll only be this sad. I will never let anybody else. I can be devastated. And I'll only be this happy. And this is the opposite of being fierce with reality in some ways. And yet, What the Psalms proclaim for us and the gospel proclaims for us is that you can be sad to the nth degree and you can be joyous to the highest degree. There's a anybody seen the movie about a boy? Is that you can sing with your eyes closed authentically. And for my generation, to be that um, brought in to something intensely, to do it unironically, we don't want to take ourselves that seriously. Like, yeah, the resurrection is a big deal, but, uh, you know, and, and I invited somebody to church yesterday, and I meant it, but I was quick to say, oh, I was just kidding. Um, it's my job, guys. <laughs> um, you know, that's sort of like, I would love for you to be there and then to instantly go, oh, well, I didn't mean it, like, but, but please come. Um, like that authenticity of this sort of fierce with reality goes away. But the women leave sort of in that joy and fear in this great way. What happens is is then Christ meets them on the road. Um, and he says to them, Uh, go and tell my brothers what has happened here. There's something I couldn't resist sharing. I told Kelly yesterday I would like to do it, is that they come and grasp his feet and worship him. And and Jesus has been worshipped several times throughout Matthew's gospel, but here he's worshipped as the risen one. But one of the best observations I found about this, and it's old, is that that they grab his feet means that he's risen in body. He's not a ghost because ghosts don't have feet. I was like... That makes you think, because yes, all the images of ghosts I've ever seen, they don't have feet. Uh, Casper, anyone? Um, The haunted mansion in Disneyland? Um, They come and grasp his feet and worship him. That he is the embodied one that they recognize and worship on the road. That Christ has risen and meets him there. And his first words to them is is greetings, this sort of... um, high, or, and it shares the root of joy um, in the Greek, is that there's a notion that, that there's this joyous greeting that he speaks to them as they have left the tomb in joy, as they're going to tell the disciples. And they came and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers uh, to go to Galilee. There they will see me. That the angel said, disciples, and that Christ says, brothers, is, proclaims this sort of tear of the resurrection is that it is about forgiveness. That Christ is going to those who have abandoned him to make this new community in the world we call the church as forgiven ones. Again, the church shouldn't be that triumphant. It might be militant in its own ways in which it is defying the way the world as it is, in its own defiance to the orders that sort of exist, but it is not triumphant. And so what Christ meets is those who need to be forgiven as he meets us here today. And this passage that that we've been using as we went through the parables, I didn't think I'd use today, but it came back to me, is that this from Graham Greene is, You can't conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. All the betrayal, all of the pain we've done in the world, all that we've hold as vindictive and murderous, all that we've done, Christ proclaims forgiveness, and he goes to his disciples. Will Willemann, who's a, a, a pastor I enjoy, the Christian Century ran a thing on trying to describe the gospel in six words, which came from a challenge uh, that happened during civil rights, and, and Will Campbell, two Wills, uh, said, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyways, which I think is a classic description of the gospel in six words. Um, But Will Willimon, uh, his was that God refuses to be God without us. That God isn't going to move past his disciples. That God isn't going to move past you and your brokenness and your betrayal. But that God is going ahead of him to the people who have left him behind. God refuses to be God without us. And so what we've witnessed here is what Matthew has Jesus teaching throughout his gospel. That the wrongly accused become innocent. That those who mourn are comforted. That those who lose their life find it. Another equation for being fierce with reality. That the servant becomes great. All of these truths are sort of encapsulated in what we see in the resurrection. This doesn't go away from what he taught, but is the fulfillment and vindication of what he thought. And so he makes this people in the world that he refuses to be without. Now is the time I'll read that sermon from John Chrysostom to end the sermon. Because like I said, we read it every year. Who am I to think that I could do better? And I invite you to listen to it. That's, not all of it's on the back of the bulletin, so you can look at that later, but just to listen to what he said back in his time on this, on this glorious day. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Are there any who are grateful servants? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Are there any weary with fasting? Let them now receive their wages. If any have toiled from the first hour, let them receive their due. If any have come after the third hour, let them with gratitude join the feast. And those that arrived after the sixth hour, let them not doubt, for they too shall sustain no loss. And if any delayed until the ninth hour, let not them hesitate, but let them come too. And they who arrived only at the eleventh hour, let them not be afraid. By reason of their delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. God gives rest to the one who comes after the eleventh hour, as well as to the one who toiled from the first. To this one he gives, and upon another he bestows. He accepts the works as he greets the endeavor. The deed he honors and the intentions he commands. Let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. For first and last alike receive their reward. Rich and poor rejoice together. Sober and slothful celebrate the day. You have kept the fast and you have not. Rejoice, for the table is richly laden. Feast royally on it. The calf is a fattened one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake all of the cup of faith. Enjoy all the richness of his goodness. Let none grieve at their own poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let none mourn, for they have fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let none fear death, for the Savior of the world has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when it descended into him. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was an uproar because it was mocked. It was an uproar for it was destroyed. It was an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it has been made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcame by what it did not see. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ in risen, is the tomb is emptied. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. God, you have rolled away the tomb of death, pulled the shroud that covers us all. Let us rejoice in this day. Let us know wherever we stand and whatever we've done, you refuse to be God without us. That you've made a people in the world you call your church who receive this good news and know that our call is to be not afraid. We don't become like dead ones through this, but we become, through our baptisms, raised to new life, Resurrected with you. We go in the world knowing that greed isn't the final word. We grow in the world knowing that violence isn't the final word. We go into the world knowing that excess and scarcity and competition isn't the final word. We go into the world knowing that death is not the last word. Today we proclaim that he's not here, he is risen. All this to the glory, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.